you've been with us over the last few weekends, we've been highlighting this uh, One Day Can Change the World campaign, something we've done uh, here at Christmas time for years at Plum Creek. And, and you saw uh, some of the things that we're doing locally. The last couple of weekends, we've highlighted some of the things we're doing uh, around the world. It's all on this card uh, in the seat um, where you're sitting. And uh, we're just asking this. This is what we're asking of everyone that would call Plum Creek home. 100% participation. If we all did something, we're going to meet that goal. And you guys are so generous. Over the last couple uh, weekends, we've already raised over $50,000 towards that goal. And absolutely, yeah. And 100% of that goes outside, outside the walls of Plum Creek. So anyway, thank you so much uh, for your participation uh, in our one-day uh, campaign. My name's Gary. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. So glad uh, that you're with us here this morning. want to welcome uh, those of you joining us online as well. Uh, the holidays are always such an interesting time of year because many of us have some extended family members that we're just not that excited to hang out with, Right? I mean, it could happen uh, for all kinds of reasons. Maybe they criticize the way that you clean your house or they, they talk about how you're parenting your kids or maybe they just want to talk about politics all the time and it may be on your side of the family, your spouse's side of the family. Uh, it could be an in-law, an outlaw. It could be a brother-in-law, uh, a, a second cousin twice removed and you love them, right? It's not that you don't love them you're just kind of glad they live a couple of states away. <laughs> now, my in-laws happen to be in town. So first of all, I am not talking about them. They're actually in this service, yeah. <laughs> They're here in this service. So second of all, I get brownie points for saying that, right? They're awesome. I love hanging out with, with my in-laws. But some of us, some of us have those family members. So what I thought we'd do today is we're just going to go around and I'm going to give everyone the opportunity to share about that family member. All right, so we'll start right over here. No, we're not going to do that. That could be a lot of fun. We'd have to double check. Are we recording this service? Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're in this series called Unlikely Christmas. And as we've seen over the last few weekends, Jesus had some interesting characters in his family as well. Maybe not his immediate family, but as we've been looking at the genealogy of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew, which would have been written to a Jewish audience, and Matthew is using this genealogy to set up the Christmas story, to set up the birth of Jesus, what we've discovered is Matthew includes some women in Jesus' genealogy, some women's names, something that would have been so outside the cultural norms of that day. But even stranger than that is that when Matthew gets to the seedy, R-rated, dysfunctional characters, people that you're like, these are in Jesus' family tree? Instead of skimming past them or, or leaving them out, he actually draws our attention to them. And so if you've missed those uh, messages the last few weekends, you need to go back and watch them. Why in the world would Matthew be drawing our attention to these kinds of questionable, even scandalous characters as he sets up the Christmas story? 
Because as unlikely as this cast of characters are to be in Jesus' family tree, they are a part of the story. But more importantly, they're the point of the story. Because Matthew knows the story of Christmas is a story to remind us we all need grace, we all need mercy, we all need forgiveness, we all need salvation, and that is the promise of Christmas. If you're taking notes, our main thought this weekend is the promise of Christmas is forever. It lasts forever. And for those of us who believe, we get to experience it both now and forever. The promise of Christmas is forever. So here's what we're going to talk about today. In this genealogy, Matthew intentionally points out a story about the one person Jesus is most closely associated with throughout his entire life here on earth. This is the one person that when I tell you his name, you likely already know something about him. But when Matthew gets to this one particular person, instead of pointing out all of the great and wonderful things that he could share about him, Matthew forces everyone who would ever read or who would ever hear this genealogy to remember the one story this man would not want you to remember. Here's how Matthew begins Jesus' genealogy. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. There's the name, David. One of the greatest heroes of the Jewish faith. Now Jesus is not the actual son of David. Son of David is a title. It's referring to the Jewish Messiah. But Jesus is the great, 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 20 plus greats grandson of David. So back to the genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah. We've talked about him, Judah and his brothers. Uh, verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, talked about her. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father, father of Salmon. Verse 5, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Remember Rahab? What was it that was said about her? Rahab the, the prostitute. And not only that, Rahab isn't Jewish. What on earth is she doing in this very, very important Jewish genealogy? So interesting. Matthew goes on, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, another woman, another non-Jew. Ruth is actually a, a bright spot in, in this genealogy. Ruth was a hero. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And Matthew should have said, and David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of, but he doesn't. Instead, he pauses and Matthew could have shared all kinds of great stories about David. He could have said, remember when David was anointed to be the future king of Israel as a boy. God sends the prophet Samuel to the, to the home of Jesse. 
And, and Jesse brings all of the older sons before Samuel. There are seven older sons, and one by one, they walk by, and Samuel's like, nope, 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 to the point where it gets a little awkward, and Jesse's like, or Samuel's like, Jesse, uh, you got any more sons? And he's like, well, there's the youngest, David. He's, he's out with the sheep. And the story goes that they go and bring David, and, and when Samuel sees him, God speak to, speaks to him and says, that's the one. Matthew, what a, what a great story about David. Or what about David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath? Man, if you have kids, that is such an awesome story. They love it. My boys, when, when they were younger, they were playing David and Goliath in our backyard with real rocks. Yeah, it didn't end well. One of them has a future as, an, uh, as a pitcher, but uh, i never seen so much blood come out of a forehead before. But Matthew, that would have been a good story to share. What about the stories of David the warrior? The Bible says that the people would actually sing about David. King Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Matthew, that could have been a great story. What about David the psalm writer? Raise your hand if you have ever found comfort by reading one of the psalms. Just raise your hand. Yeah. David wrote most of those. Matthew, Matthew, you could have called attention to that. What about the promise that the Messiah would come from the line of David? Well, I actually want us to spend a few moments on that story. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, you can open up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is 3,000 years ago, 1,000 years before Jesus was born. David, as was prophesied about him, is now the king. And David has been very successful as a king, and, and his armies have defeated the enemies around him. And so David has spent time building himself this amazing palace to live in. And one day David is saying to himself, basically, he's, he's like, why should I live in this palace when our great God has no building for us to worship him in? And so he goes about, he sets his sight on building a temple for God. But God has other plans, so he sends a, another prophet. This one's named Nathan. He sends Nathan to go and talk to David, and this is what God says to say. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture. Remember? Little shepherd boy. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people, Israel. Verse 9, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And many of you, even before you came into church today, this could even be your very first time in church, but many of you I know already knew something about King David before you came here today. It could be as simple as, as uh, the story of David and Goliath or, or Michelangelo's famous statue of David. But because of the culture that we live in, you knew something. So that verse basically came true, didn't it? 
3,000 years later, people all over the world know something about who David was. He goes on, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. That word house, it doesn't mean a building. building. It means a name that will go on and on and on. For generations to come, people will know the name of David. Verse 12, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. So David, you're going you're gonna to have a son. He's going to be king. It's going to be Solomon. He's not born yet, but it's, it's Solomon. Verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name. So David, you don't get to build the temple, but Solomon will. And Solomon did. It was this famous, famous wonder of the ancient world. It was known as Solomon's Temple. He is the one who will build a house in my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then listen to this next part, because it's very, very important. Verse 14, I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by with floggings inflicted by human hands. In other words, David, if you or, or any of your people that would follow you disobey me and rebel against me, I will punish them because I'm a good father. I'm, I'm not going to overlook when my people are disobeying me or rebelling against me. But look at the next verse, verse 15. But my, what's the word? Say it louder. But my, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Say forever. forever. Say it again. Forever. David, you can't build the temple, but your throne, your name, your family, your lineage will be established forever. And that, David, is an unconditional promise. What a great story about God's promise to David. And it's because of that story and, and others that the Jews knew that the Messiah would have to come from the line of David. So now fast forward 1,000 years back to Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy of Jesus. And instead of mentioning that story or any of those other great stories of David that I shared, Matthew zeroes in on one story that is so embarrassing, so incredibly selfish, so immoral and, and dysfunctional, it's horrible, it, it's twisted. Look again in Matthew 1. We'll go back to verse 5. Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Key phrase, had been. And if you were a Jew and you were hearing that or reading it for the very first time, you'd be like, oh, Matthew. 
did you really have to go there? And when I share this story, you'll understand why this, this would have made them feel so uncomfortable. David made lots of mistakes. But this is the one story, I promise you, this is the one story that if David could go back and undo it, he would. It's in the same book of the Bible that we were just reading from, 2 Samuel, where God made David that incredible and unconditional promise. It's only four chapters later. Write this down, 2 Samuel 11. Later today, go back and, and read that story. I'm going to summarize it for us. One night, David's on the wall of his palace, and he looks down, and he sees a beautiful woman taking a bath. So he calls a servant over, and he's like, who's that? And the servant says, well, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife. Now, Uriah was one of David's mighty men, they were called. It means out of all the thousands of soldiers that were in King David's army, Uriah was one of his top warriors. The Bible says there were only about 30 of them. This also means David personally knows Uriah. And so David's like, where's Uriah? And the servant's like, well, he's out, he's out fighting. He's on the battlefield. Well, I'd like to talk to his wife. Well, they do more than just talk. And a few weeks later, Bathsheba sends word letting David know that she is pregnant with his child, and now David has a real mess on his hands. And so he sends uh, another servant to, to go get Uriah from off the battlefield. And so Uriah comes off the battlefield, and, and he asks, you know, Uriah, how's the battle going? And after they've talked about that, David says, hey, Uriah, you know, since you're already here in the city, why don't you go home tonight and... Spend some time with your wife, wink, wink. And David thinks to himself, that'll, that'll solve my problem. Except that Uriah doesn't go home. He sleeps outside the doors of the palace that night. And when David finds out, he calls for Uriah and he, he says, why didn't you go home? And Uriah's like, my king, how could I go home and make love to my wife when, when my friends are on the battlefield? They're literally dying out there. I, I couldn't do that. That is not what David was hoping to hear. So he tries again. He invites Uriah into his palace for dinner and this time he gets him good and drunk. And then he sends him home again. But again, Uriah is thinking about his friends on the battlefield, and so he doesn't go home. At which point in the story, you would think God would be saying, David, Uriah, David, Uriah, I think I'll, might, I'll make Uriah the king. He's the only one that's doing what's right. But you see, God had made an unconditional promise to David, and God always keeps his promises then David does something you can't even imagine. He writes a message to his co commander Joab, and he says, when Uriah is back in battle, I want you to put him on the very front lines, and then I want you to give a command and have all the other soldiers fall back and let him die. 
And then David sends that message with Uriah back to the battlefield. I mean, how low can you go? He sends Uriah back to battle carrying his own death sentence sealed by the king. Joab gets the message and Joab obeys. And the very next day, Uriah is put out front and the Bible says that he is fighting bravely. And the command is given, the men fall back and Uriah is killed. And a little while later, David marries Bathsheba. And from his perspective, everything's good. His selfish, immoral, twisted sin has been covered up. But God knew. God knew. And so a little while later, he sends that prophet Nathan to go and confront the king. And, and Nathan does. He confronts David, and David just breaks. He is brokenhearted. He owns his sin. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't try and excuse it. He confesses his sin to God, all of it. And Nathan says, David, you're forgiven. Because you see, God had made an unconditional promise. But Nathan also reminded David, there is always a consequence to sin. And God's discipline is absolutely brutal. The baby born to Bathsheba dies. David's sons go to war with one another. One of his sons starts plotting a, a, a rebellion against David. So David actually has to flee his own palace. And the betrayal becomes public. So David's power gets further diminished. That same son humiliates his father David in such a way that you can't even imagine unless you read the story. His favorite son murders his oldest son. Then his commander Joab murders his favorite son. And even though God's punishment is so brutal through all of the chaos and all of the bloodshed and all of the incredible personal loss to David, God never withdrew his promise. I need to say that again. God never withdrew his promise because God doesn't withdraw his promises. Someone here needed to hear that. His promises are eternal. And God always keeps them. Then almost 1,000 years later, 990 years later, with all of that as a backdrop, all of the chaos and the embarrassment and the immorality and the dysfunction and the yuck, 990 years later, a man in the line of David named Joseph, along with his pregnant wife named Mary, made their way to the little town of Bethlehem, but which by the first century had become known 
as the town of David. And there she gave birth to the great, 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 20 plus greats grandson of King David, the Messiah who would save the world because God keeps his promises. So why did Matthew include that story of David in the genealogy? Because if you're Matthew and you're an ex-tax collector, you know what it means to be forgiven of sin. And if you're Matthew and you know that if you ever had to come to God on the basis of your own personal righteousness, you could never come to God. And if you're Matthew writing to a Jewish audience, you would want to remind them and you would want to remind us, a very Gentile audience, that this man, David, the king, the focal point of Israel, a hero of the Old Testament, was a sinner and a failure. A failure in every sense of the word as a leader, as a friend, as a father, as a husband. And God forgave him. So if you're Matthew and you're about to tell the greatest story ever told, you can't skip this story about David because this story underscores the incredible, amazing, life-altering truth that when God makes a promise, God keeps his promise forever. And then that when God makes a promise, even the most selfish, embarrassing, scandalous sin in the world cannot force him to go back on his word. David and his sin are a part of the story because David and his sin are the point of the story. And so Matthew sits down to write his gospel and he knows he's about to tell a story about God making a new promise. But not a promise to an individual. God is now about to make a promise to everyone in the whole world. So I can imagine Matthew as he's, as he's writing down the genealogy, he's thinking this is perfect, this is perfect. Just as God kept his promise to David, in the very same way God will keep his promise to everyone in the world. The promise of Christmas is forever. The angel at Jesus' birth said it best. You may have heard it a thousand times, but now listen to it through a brand new filter. Luke chapter 2, the angel said, I bring you good news that will cause great joy. For who? Say it again. For who? All the people. You are a part of all the people. I am a part of all the people. God is making a promise to all the people. Jewish people, Gentile people, first century people, 21st century people, good people, bad people, all the people in between, young people, old people, middle-aged people, 
didn't forget about us. People for impeachment and people who are against it. People of every color. Straight people. LGBTQ people. Religious people. Non-religious people. People who think they're better than others. People who know, man, because of my past, all my regrets, I don't have a chance. The angel said, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And then he says in verse 11, today, in the town of David. So this is my hope for you. And this is my hope for me. For the rest of our lives, every year at Christmas time, when we read or hear the phrase, in the town of David, it could happen at a, at a children's play, a choir concert, it could happen here in church, it could happen when you're reading the Bible or, or a Christmas devotional, it could happen when you're watching a Charlie Brown Christmas. And Linus says it. I hope that for the rest of our lives, when we read or hear the phrase, in the town of David, in the town of David, in the town of David, David the selfish, David the adulterer, David the liar, David who leveraged his power for personal gain, David the murderer, David who tried to cover up his sin, David who ruined his family. I hope that for the rest of our lives, it will be a reminder that God keeps his promises. And the promise for you and me today is 2,000 years ago, the angel said, today in the town of David, that sinner, a Savior has been born to you, the Messiah, the Lord. A Savior who would remove our sin by dying on a cross for it. A Savior who would come back to life three days later to defeat sin and death. A Savior who would make relationship with God available to all the people. Because we all need grace. We all need mercy. We all need forgiveness. We all need salvation. And that's the promise of Christmas. And if we believe, the promise of Christmas is forever. To be experienced now and to be experienced for eternity. Maybe you're here today and you're like, Gary, that all sounds good, but you just, you just don't understand. God could never forgive me. You don't know my story. Nope. But I know a bunch of your stories. And I know my story. I also know David's story. And Judah. And Tamar's. And Rahab's. And countless others. 
And because a Savior has been born, no sin is too bad, no problem too great, no addiction too strong, no hatred too entrenched, no hurt is too deep, no depression too dark, no label too sticky, no scandal too scandalous. Our sin is part of the story because the redemption of our sin is the point of the story. Would you guys pray with me? And what I'd like to do as we close our time together is I'm going to lead us in a prayer. It's a written prayer. And I want you to, to, to say it out loud with me. So I'll read a phrase and then you repeat it out loud together. And maybe you're here today and, and, and as I've been sharing, something has just been stirring inside of your heart and, and you're like, I want, I want the promise of Christmas to be mine. Something's just been stirring up inside of you. And if that's you, you can pray this prayer. And, and for the rest of us, we're going we're gonna to reaffirm. If we're in relationship with God, this is an opportunity to reaffirm our relationship with Jesus and our relationship with God. So all together, we're going to read this out loud. Repeat after me. Dear God. Okay, we need to do it louder than that. Dear God. I believe you are the great promise keeper. As you kept your promise to David, I believe you will keep your promise to me to forgive me and accept me, to love me and save me. I believe the promise of Christmas is forever. Amen.